Well, hey, good evening. Welcome to Young Adults. My name is Jared, and I'm so excited for our Young Adult Conference in a couple weeks. And I hope that, uh, I hope you would come, because I, we really believe it's going to be, one, two of the best nights of your fall, but two, uh, an opportunity to engage with your creator in a new way. Um, well, tonight we're starting a new short series before the conference called The Gospel is the Answer. And we're going to be in Mark 5 if you have your Bible. If you don't have your Bible, that's completely okay. The words, all the scripture is going to be up on the screen. Um, but tonight, our, our kind of if I had to put um, a title on my message, it would be Don't Shortchange the Power of God. Don't Shortchange the Power of God. Um, when I first... Uh, got to Springfield from St. Louis Community College in St. Louis and then came to Springfield. I started looking for a job and uh, I wanted a place where I wouldn't have to clean toilets or the floor when I was done. And one of the places you can do that is at a bank. So you sit there until somebody comes up to you, you help them with their money, with their account, and then they're done. Um, but the issue is uh, you have to deal with money then and uh, you have to be good at counting. Wasn't always great at counting. Um, and I remember it was like, Right after I was done being trained, uh, this person came in, and we, there was like a policy for all these things, but the, somebody came in, and they had like a big stack of 20s, and they're like, hey, we just want to change this out for hundreds, and I was like, okay, that's great, and it was already strapped the way that $2,000 worth of 20s came in, and you saw that type of money all the time, so I was like, this is going to be fine, so I took that money, there were two straps of them, counted out 4,000 in, in hundreds, and handed it back to them, and took the money, and then I realized I didn't look at the money that was not on the outside, and it flipped through it, I didn't count it, and I was like, man, oh man, that could have gone terribly. Luckily, luckily it went fine, uh, but I can remember some of the most angry somebody's ever been with me, not when I made this huge mistake, I shorted this little old lady her change, like she got a check for like a specific amount of money, and I didn't give her like the, the exact or the right change, and she came back, and she like, she didn't come find me and tell me, she like walked in the lobby, beelined for the manager, and the manager came and talked to me and said, listen, you shorted this lady 87 cents, and she would like her 87 cents, so give me three quarters, a dime, and two pennies, and we'll make it even, and we'll be good. And I just remember like when you had too little money in your drawer, you were short. And when you had too much, you were long and you'd have to figure out what all that came from. But really when we shortchange something is to not give the credit that it's due. When we shortchange something, we don't give the credit that it's due. Um, I'm from St. Louis and I was 10 when the Rams won the Super Bowl in, 2000, in, in 1999. If that will date me at all, you can figure out how old I am if you want to do the math. But I was 10 when the Rams, Rams won the Super Bowl. Became a Rams fan. Kurt Warner in The Greatest Show on Turf. Was so excited. They were so much fun to watch. Uh, they won in 99. The Rams had never had like a winning season in St. Louis since they moved from L.A. So I was like, this is awesome to be a Rams fan. And if you know anything about current culture, uh, 2001 was the beginnings of a dynasty. And it started with the Rams who were up a lot of the game until the very end when a young guy who took over halfway through the season named Tom Brady, who was the 199th pick, who was a nobody at the time, came up against one of the greatest offenses and played one of the greatest games, fought back at the end. Adam Vinatieri kicked a field goal with time running out to win the game and broke my 11-year-old heart when they didn't win in 2001, okay? And I remember then being like, this nobody just beat my favorite team. This guy that was barely drafted, beat this incredible team, and I'm so upset. And they didn't win the next year, but then Tom Brady comes back the following two years and wins a back-to-back -back championship the next two years. So here he is in his first four years in the league, he's won three times, and here I am, my heart's breaking, all I want is for this guy to be a failure in life, it's all I ever want. 
And um, if you're a person who's alive, you know like Tom Brady didn't live up to my hopes for him. And it really wasn't until last year when he got away from New England, he started playing for a new team in Tampa Bay and everybody thought, okay, this is gonna be the sink or swim moment. When we figure out, is Tom Brady good because he's good or is Tom Brady good because he played for the right team And Tom Brady's good. We all learned that. Tom Brady's a good football player. And last year was the year I felt like I stopped shortchanging Tom Brady. And I was like, he is that good. What is it, six or seven championships? I'll give you your credit now. And I stopped shortchanging Tom Brady. Um, The other place I think we see things get um, shortchanged is like, you ever go to a restaurant and you're used to like, okay, when you order this certain thing, they give you this many of the item. Like when you order the chicken strip basket, they give you X amount. When you order a burger and fries, they're gonna give you this amount of fries. And you go somewhere and they give you like seven fries and you're like, okay, I, one, I'm angry because I feel like I didn't get what I paid for. But two, you just feel what? Shortchanged. You didn't get something that you felt like maybe you deserved, or maybe you left something on the table of like, man, I'm used to this, and now I'm getting this, and it's not there, right? Shortchanged. And I think sometimes we do that with the power of God, and I'm speaking to people that uh, you consider yourself a Christian, a believer, you're trying to follow God. I I think sometimes we look at the power of God, and we look at what he's done in our life, and we go, hey, it's awesome that you did that, but I don't really know that you can do everything The Bible says that you can, so I'm just going to live my life kind of this marginalized, smaller version of what the Bible says it can be. It'll be fine. It'll end up being okay. And we end up shortchanging, marginalizing what God can really do in our lives. Or on the other end of the spectrum, maybe you're here and you're like, I'm just checking out church for the first time or the first time in, you know, since high school or something like that, when your parents forced you to come or whatever, And you're like, okay, can God really do the things that he said he could do? Because the Bible talks a lot about forgiveness of sin, but then you look at some of the things that the people in this room, myself included, might struggle with, and you go say, okay, God says that he can forgive. Can he really forgive it if it's that deep-rooted? Can God really forgive if it's been years of this thing? I can't shake it. I can't get rid of it. I don't really know that God can do that. I don't know that he can. This addiction, this bad relationship that I just, I can't get out of this same pattern, this spiral of mental health, the shame and regret that I carry with me all the time, the unforgiveness, the anger, the bitterness that I carry in my heart, the pride, the selfishness, the the desire to have material things or success. I just, I can't get enough of it and I don't know what to do. I can't get enough of the next high. I can't get enough of the bottle. I don't know that God really can forgive all these things. We're convinced, one, we can't change. Two, can he really do it? And three, he's already kind of done enough. Can he really take me from like, he forgave me, but to all these different things? And I think we shortchange the power of God. But I I, I just want to ask, if we really think that God could do more, wouldn't you want to live in that? If, If you were in a dating relationship with someone, and it could be better, you could experience more, wouldn't you want to experience more? If you could get more out of your education, wouldn't you want more out of it? If you could have deeper friendships, wouldn't you want more out of it? Well, what I want to talk about tonight is the God who created everything has power and a goodness 
that I think sometimes we're okay just scratching the surface and doing a little bit and saying, ah, that's, that's probably good enough for me. If you knew some of the stuff that was in my past, this is, this is enough for me. And I think we shortchange the power of God. We shortchange what God could do because of our limitations that we put on him in our minds. So we're going to be in Mark 5. And I want to give you a little bit of background. In Mark, Jesus is like very much doing all of his ministry. He's recruited 12 guys to kind of come and learn from him. And I love these guys because they're just kind of along for the ride. And if you read through the first four chapters or the first four books of the New Testament, what are called the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you see that, that these guys are following Jesus around and they are getting it wrong just as much as they're getting it right. And they're standing with Jesus as he's doing ministry, which is kind of a good thing for me and you to read because we get it wrong about as much as we get it right. And in, in Mark 4, what's happening is Jesus is teaching, he's doing some good things, and all of a sudden, like, they get on this boat, and Jesus is, is sleeping, like, in the stern, in the bow of the boat, and this storm comes, and this crazy thing is happening, this storm is going crazy, and the guys come out, and they're like, wake up, Jesus, because we're about to die. I love the drama in, in the disciples. They're like, we're about to die, and they're not like, oh, what can he do about it? They're like, he doesn't even care. I want you to be a little upset with me, Jesus. There's a little, little twinge in their voice. Be mad with me. That's all I ever want is for someone to be upset with me. Who are we mad at? And that's what they want. And, and Jesus gets up and he, he just, he goes out to the bow of the boat and he just says three words. He says, peace be still. And the waves go flat. And the water, the rain stops. And he sits back down. And he says, ah, oh, it just takes a little bit of faith. Can you imagine in that moment just like, we thought we were going to die, and Jesus comes in, flat, calm, quiet. He says, why are you so afraid? You have no faith. So they're on the boat. I can't imagine the, the kind of the hangover from that moment of like so much emotion. And this is where we pick up in, in Mark 5. This is what happens. He says, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of Gerasenes, and I'm probably saying that word wrong. Uh, and then when they came, or when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs was a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart, and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. So what we have here is uh, like the heading of mine, and what a lot of people consider this guy's story is that he was a demon-possessed man. Now, say what you will about demons. There's a lot of theology underneath here, and there's a lot of times where Jesus comes in contact with people that have a demon possession. What it talks about here is an unclean spirit. And then I, I, we're not going to dive into that. That's not the main point of what we're talking about today. What we do need to know is that there is spiritual warfare that happens, and it is real. Now, there are some similarities that we're going to pull out of here with some of our situations and this man, but I'm not saying that anyone here is probably demon-possessed, but while I do think that, I think some of us are under some oppression from things that are not good and that are evil. And when you look at this guy's situation, there are some similarities. The first one, he has, he has this unclean spirit, and we have a potentially similar experience. I'm not saying it's exactly the same, but a lot of people believe, and a lot of theologians believe that to be demon-possessed, there had to be some sort of openness initially to what that demon was kind of offering, to what that unclean spirit was coming in and saying, hey, this is what I'm offering you. 
whether that's lust or greed or something that they were kind of open to. Man, that does sound awesome. I'd love to have that. And as much as you stay next to that, it opens yourself up to that is what, it's, is what a lot of theologians will argue. And I think that for some of us, while we might not be demon-possessed, but there might be some difficult things, some evil things, some things that you'd like to be rid of in your heart and in your life, that initially they were invited because it sounded like a good time, but now those things torment you. That's where this guy was. I bet if you could kind of separate that guy from all the stuff that he had going on, he would say, please remove this from my life. I don't want it there anymore. And I think if we're all honest, there's an aspect of our emotions, there's an aspect of our motives, there's an aspect of the decisions that we make, there's an aspect of our mind that we would go, man, I wish I could just surgically remove that and, and, and be apart from that. That at one time it sounded really nice and really fun and really good, but now it torments me and I can't get rid of it. The second thing you see is he lived among the tombs. He lived among the tombs. So when, where Jesus pulls his boat up to is essentially a cemetery. It's a place, probably kind of a rock uh, hillside that they would have dug into and put a crypt or a haunt is what they called it. There's a place to put dead bodies and basically cover them back up. And where this guy lived was awful. I mean, there would have been some amount of, of fixing the smell of death, but this guy was surrounded by death. And I think going back to point one where there's things in our life that torment us, they're not just like, ah, oh, that kind of bothers me. We've seen the fallout. We've seen the difficulty that, that our sin, that our evil, that the stuff that we initially invited in that now torments us brings to us and the people around us. And honestly, it's the stench of death. We've seen how our selfishness hurts. We've seen how our pride pushes people away. We see how our desire to be right doesn't make us friends, it makes us enemies. We've seen what our addiction does to our bodies, to our minds, to our hearts. The shame and regret, the unforgiveness that we carry on, the anger, the bitterness, doesn't make you closer to people, it makes you further away. And what we end up doing is that we carry these things around with us, and we carry around with us the stench of death that this guy carried around with him. And it's where he lived. The third thing you see is that he couldn't be bound by chain or by shackle. Him and the people around him tried to save him from himself. Maybe if, if, if we just put this around him and then put this in the ground, maybe he will kind of, things will get a little bit better for him. Does that sound familiar? Maybe if I just get rid of Instagram for a week, I'll, I'll get rid of the porn problem. Maybe if I just stop seeing that person, I won't be so bitter anymore. Maybe if I just don't talk as much, I won't seem so selfish. Maybe if I create a budget, I won't be so addicted to shopping. Maybe if I don't see that person, the bitterness, the anger, the unforgiveness won't be there. Maybe if I change my friend groups, and all those things are, are little shackles that we're putting on. And some of those are really good things, and some of those things are things that need to, be, need to happen, but they're not the answer. Because you've seen how you can live like that for a little bit and go, man, this is good. I'm kind of taking care of my problems. And then when you really want to, when you really need to, you can break that, and you can get around it. There's not a remedy that gave this man relief. There, and there's, I think for us, 
Sometimes there's some places that we live, there's some things that we engage in, that we go, okay, I know it's bad for me, I know it brings the scent of death, I know it's not good for me, I invited this in and I'm going to try to bind it, and it's a half measure, it doesn't really work. And the last thing you see him doing is he's crying out and he's cutting himself, that there's no amount of emotional or physical pain that he expressed outwardly that gave him relief internally. There's nothing that he's tried that made him feel better at the end of the day. It said that he would go up to the mountains and cry out at night. I just know that there's probably people here that when everybody else is gone, when it's just you alone with your thoughts, when it's you alone with the reality of your situation, you don't see a place for hope in your situation. And this is where this guy lived. This is what that evil, what that difficulty brought into his life. Nothing helped him. And if you keep reading in verse 6 and 7, when Jesus came up to him, it says that he came, the first verse says he came immediately up to him. But in 6 and 7 it says, when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. And crying out with a loud voice, he says, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Now, this is not the guy speaking. This is that unclean spirit that's living in him speaking through his physical body. Now, lot to unpack there, but what we're going to talk about right now is what evil's response is when God shows up. When God showed up, evil didn't go, oh, I got to get out of here, this dude. He, he didn't go, okay, get in one of the caves. Jesus. He runs to his feet, and he kneels down. Now, for some of us, that might look like worship. For him, he was paying homage. He was respecting who he knew was standing before him. Even though he didn't worship him, he knew what he could do. And I think we have to look at the things that are in our lives that we look at and we go, man, I just don't know that I can ever be free from fill in the blank. Those things... When Jesus comes into the equation, they bow down at his feet. He has ultimate authority and ultimate power over all the things, over all the I can'ts, over all the limitations, over all the reasons, over all the generational, over all the years, over all the deep-rooted, over all the difficult things that we go, I don't know if I'll ever change. I don't know if I could ever be any different. All those things, when Jesus enters the equation, they get on their hands and knees and they say, you have all authority and you have all power. We're nothing. Please don't kill me. And reading that this week was making me go, man, I shortchanged the power of God because I go, man, how, how in the world can I ever get rid of this attitude that I have? When Jesus enters the equation and he's present, all of our sin is done, it's finished. Now we know that Jesus would go on to bear the weight, the burden, the penalty of all the sin, of all the things that we'd ever done on the cross, and he took all that on himself so that you and I would not have 
the power of sin over us anymore. But sometimes we will show back up and say, I'm going to choose to live back under the power of it. But I think that this demon, this unclean spirit, saw two things in God, in in Jesus when he showed up that day. The unclean spirit acknowledged two things. Jesus' purpose in removing the power and the hold of sin. That he didn't come in and go, oh man, what's this guy doing here? He knew what he was there for. He knew that the name of Jesus was not playing games. He knew that the name of Jesus was there with a purpose, with a plan, and that he was going to rid this guy of that evil. Do you know that that same power is the power that God wants to live inside of you with the Holy Spirit? And I think we end up shortchanging that. We end up marginalizing that and go, yeah, he's, he's like saved me of all my sins, but like, I don't know, I've always had this generational drinking problem, or I've always had an anger problem, so I don't really know if that's going to be any different. When I think we shortchange what God wants to do in your life, both the power to forgive you and the ability to change moving forward, not just to change so you're a better looking version of yourself, but so that you can look back and go, this is who I used to be, but because of God, look at where I am now. It's not because of me. That that demon, that unclean spirit acknowledged that God had a purpose in what he was doing. God is not neutral towards you. God is not looking at you going, man, I hope he figures it out. Show up to the feet of God and see what he does in your life. And the second thing he sees is that Jesus has the power to do it. He shows up and he doesn't play games. He doesn't doesn't ask around. He goes, hey, please, whatever, what you have for me, do it for me. Jesus, son of the most high God, he's acknowledging who he is and what he's capable to do. And he says, I adjure you by God, do not torment me. What he's saying is that he realized in that moment that God had the power and the authority, that Jesus had all the power and the authority to send that demon, to send that unclean spirit into a place until time ended. Which is hard to fathom. And he said, please just let me like, live for like a little bit longer. And it's kind of a weird, difficult thing to kind of figure out what, what does, does God just not kill all of evil in the moment? We'll see that in just a second. But he acknowledges, God, you have the power to do this. And I think that we have to look at like, if you're a Christian, God has the power to forgive you and he has the power to change you. He's not going to leave you where you're at and just go, man, this is just my lot. This is who I'm going to be. He has a purpose in your life, and he has the power to change it. I want to ask you the question, what's your view on God's power? Not what what is it that you would write down if I asked you and you had to turn it into me. What is it, like what's your practical working application view of what God's power is capable to do in your heart and in your life and in your world? Do you read God's word and say this same God lives in me? capable. So yeah, I'm going to pray. This same God operates in this world, so I'm going to give. I'm going to serve him. I'm going to give my life because he's done so much for me that he can do so much more than what I could do with my entire life. He could do it in a moment. So I'm going to serve him. What's your view on God's power? What you see next is almost 
kind of interesting. There's this exchange, and and I'm going to kind of give you the synopsis of the next couple of verses. But basically what happens is that Jesus says, well, what do you want to happen? And who are you? Actually, he asks his name first. And the unclean spirit exchanges this, these words with him and kind of says, my name is Legion, which kind of just means I'm, there's a lot of unclean spirits living within this person. That they believe that's anywhere between two and 6,000. So there's a lot going on in that guy's head. And he says, well, what do you want to happen? And he says, please don't torment us. Please don't kill us. He says, basically, will you send us into this herd of pigs that's in the field nearby so that we can just live? And Jesus grants that to them. And what happens is he grants that to them. They, they are possessed these pigs. And as soon as they possess them, they fall off a cliff and die into, into the water that Jesus just sailed out of. And it's like just kind of a weird interaction and there's probably more to that than I'm going to get into today. But what happens is that that's probably, I mean, if there were 2,000 pigs is what's recorded there. If there were 2,000 pigs, that probably represents a decent amount of commerce in that area at the time. That there was probably a decent amount of people that relied on the sale, on their meat, on whatever they, they used then and said, this is my income. So there were herdsmen that did their jobs and made sure that they stayed safe and that they, they raised them and all those good things. And then Jesus just kind of put some demons in them and they ran off a cliff and they all died. So it's a, it's a decent big deal of like what happened. So the herdsmen run back to town and they tell all the townspeople like, hey, I don't know what happened. You know the crazy guy? Some guy talked to him and basically told him to, all, the, all the demons that were in him to leave and they entered the pigs and the pigs fell off a cliff and like we, we don't really know what's going on. And that would have represented like a pretty big deal at the time. Like, that would have been like, hey, uh, Bass Pro, Kraft Foods, Missouri State, um, all, the, all the big employers in Springfield, done, closed, flattened tomorrow. And it's like, okay, well, there's going to be some people showing up on the property to figure out what happens. And that's what happens in verse 14. I'm going to read verse 14. It says, the herdsmen fled and told in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. And they came to Jesus and saw the demon-possessed man... Listen to this. The one who had been, had the legion sitting there, clothed, and in his right mind, and they were afraid. They saw the power of what Jesus did and changed in his life. And here they were looking at all of their commerce literally falling off a cliff and dying, and they showed up and they're like, what happened to the, aren't you the, and you got clothes on, and that's different than normal. And you're sitting there, and there's no chains on you, and you're not having a thousand conversations in your own head. Forget the pigs for a minute. What happened here? That I think sometimes We shortchange the power of what God has done in your heart and in your life and the story of what God has done in changing you and who you used to be and who you are now because we don't always get to see that. That we always want to go, okay, it's just, it's a little change. It's not that big of a deal. But I can remember, I can remember somebody that, that met somebody in Springfield that they knew them in high school and they saw them across the room, in this room, and they went, that's the girl 
Okay, I've seen her do some crazy stuff in high school. And she's here? And it was like, oh yeah, she's great. Like, no, 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 no. Let me tell you some stories about that girl. Because I've seen her do some stuff. And I've seen that sense of fear. That what God can change in someone is undeniable. What God has done in you, if you are a believer here today, if God has taken you from death to life, what God has done in your heart is unbelievable. It's undeniable. Regardless of how glamorous or how crazy or how wild your story is, where you were doing crazy things or if you were saved at a young age like I was, this story is all the same, that my heart is desperately wicked and that I was running from God and I was dead in my sin, that I was not able to save myself. That guy was living amongst the tombs, was not able to save himself. But God, who's rich in mercy, saved us. And the Bible talks about how that's a gift and all that we have to do is accept it. To confess with our mouth and believe in our hearts that Jesus is Lord. That means he sits on the throne. That means he's the most important. He's the decision maker. He's the guy. He's the one we worship. Not just pay homage to and go, okay, I get that you can do some stuff, but go, God, you are worthy of my life following you. And I think we shortchange what God can do with that story. So what happens next in this, in this story is that after they're afraid and they do that moment where they look at the guy and they go, okay, hold up. They look back at Jesus and they go, okay, Jesus, if this is the type of thing that you do, leave. And it says they use the word, they begged him to leave. And when he starts to leave, look at verse, where is it, 18. And as he was getting in the boat, Jesus says, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. And what Jesus does here is so interesting. He says, he did not permit him to, but said to him, go home and tell your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. Can I ask you, how much has the Lord done for you? How has the Lord had mercy on you? That just means how's he forgiven you, not giving you what you deserve. If you're a believer here today, know those two things. How much has the Lord done for you? And how much has he forgiven you? And he tells this guy, hey, go home and tell your family, your friends. It basically means, hey, go to your city, tell the people that you know. Because I'm sure that the people that tried to put chains on him to help him at some point went, man, that guy's a lost cause. I came back and tried to bring him some food and the, the chains were off and he was nowhere to be found. I can hear him at night from the mountains. And I'm sure that the people would have said, man, I wish he wasn't enslaved to those things. And to see him walking back up, clothed and in his right mind, they would have gone, what in the world saved you from that life that you were living? And I think sometimes we shortchange the story of, I mean, can I just tell you how good God is to me? Can I just tell you who God is? How he's forgiven me? You don't have to say anything. But his story was undeniable. 
And what God did in his life was unbelievable. And in verse 20, it says, he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, which is like a a grouping of 10 cities on the east side of that lake that Jesus was at. That was kind of near the place that that guy was. And it's kind of interesting because it's like a Roman grouping of 10 cities. So the guy probably wasn't from 10 cities. He was probably from one. But it says that he went and started telling how much Jesus had done for him. And look at the last phrase that says, everyone marveled. Sometimes we shortchange the power of what God can do in our lives because we're unwilling to tell it. And then one of my favorite things, if you read through Mark and you flip over a little bit to, I think, uh, chapter 7, end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, Jesus shows back up to the, to the Decapolis. Now, this was a place that were Roman cities. These were not, would not have been places that were Jewish-influenced cities. These weren't people that were looking for a coming Messiah and really hoping that Jesus was the guy. These were people that had all their stuff. They were Roman citizens, that things were going well. And Jesus shows up there and he's healing people. And the next thing you know, there are 4,000 people that are coming to hear the good news of Jesus. And I don't think it's unrelated that a couple chapters earlier, Jesus sends a guy who had some problems that he healed and said, go home. And then Jesus shows up there and 4,000 people are saying, I want to come and hear this guy, Jesus. Because everyone marveled. I think we have the capacity with our lives to make me people marvel at God. But I think so many Christians, so many of us stop at the healing and we miss the harvest that God has. Matthew 9, 37, he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Will you labor? Will you go and tell the goodness of how much God has done for you and his mercy for you? And people will marvel, not at you, not at how you've made this 180 degree turn and change in your life, but at how good God is. And I think a lot of us wonder, man, what's this? What am I missing? God healed me. What's next? This is it. This is what's going to give purpose. This is what we're going to see God start to move and do things that we could have never imagined if we would say, God, I just want to see you marveled at in my life. And I just want to be a tool for it. I want to be something that you use to show people how good you are. Will you bow your head?